Welcome to the Flourish with Neural Retraining podcast. I'm your host, Madeline Lowry, founder of Twin Cities Neural Retraining and a certified MAP method practitioner specializing in anxiety and chronic health conditions. In episode 60, I'm going to describe the science, the biochemistry behind mind-body medicine and how working with the emotions has an impact on chronic illness. This is based on the groundbreaking work of Candace Pert, PhD, as explained in her book, Molecules of Emotion. By the end of this episode, I'd like for you to have a better understanding about the molecules of emotion and their function, what happens when they are blocked, how that impacts disease states, and the value of emotion-releasing modalities like the MAP method in restoring the healthful flow of these important molecules. As always, we must disclaim that the information we share in the podcast is for educational purposes only. As MAP method practitioners, we do not diagnose or treat disease. Instead, we work with the person and the personality to optimize health. All right, are you ready? Let's get started. So to begin, let's talk a little bit about Candace Pert and who she was. Candace Pert, PhD, was an internationally recognized neuroscientist and pharmacologist. She was the former chief of brain biochemistry at the National Institutes of Health, or what's commonly called the NIH. She first became famous for her research as a PhD student for finding the elusive opiate receptor in the brain, the human brain, in 1978. Her work from that time, the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, took place at Johns Hopkins, then at the NIH, where she spent 13 years, and then at Georgetown University. Sadly, she passed away in 2013. Her interest was in neurobiology and psychology, the biology of our thoughts and emotions. And her work on discovering the opiate receptor, you know, was made very personal to her because she'd had this experience before she entered her PhD program at Johns Hopkins. She had had a back injury, very severe back injury from a horse riding accident. And this laid her up in bed for weeks or months, waiting for her back to heal. And the excruciating pain was relieved by a morphine derivative that she was given by her her doctor. And so she had this personal experience of using an opiate-type drug to relieve her pain, but she noted that not only did it take away the pain really effectively, but it also created a state of euphoric bliss. And she was fascinated by that. How could this single drug have both of these effects, both 
incredible pain control, as well as creating an emotional state. That was an insight that would drive her work. So once she found this opiate receptor in the brain in 1978, it was important for other reasons, of course. It was very important because at that time, there was the war on drugs. Pharmaceutical companies were looking for a target in the brain that they could develop drugs for that would be helpful in treating addicts. And the opiate receptor was the target that was needed. But once this opiate receptor was found in the brain, you know, I think science had, scientists had always known that it had to be there because otherwise these foreign chemicals, or what we call exogenous chemicals, like morphine, like street drugs, right, had to have a place. They had to have receptors in order to be uh, biologically active. Once she found the opiate receptor, this begged the question, you know, our cells don't have receptors unless there is some natural chemical made by the body that is meant to act on that receptor. What was that natural chemical? This is what everyone wanted to know. It was important to find the natural ligand, the endogenous substance that created the same effect in the body. And so when that endogenous substance was found, it was named endorphin, which was the combination of the words endogenous morphine. This was the first molecule of emotion, the first recognition that a molecule made in the body had activity both biologically and also emotionally. So that's how Candace Pert began her work. And she spent the next, well, the rest of her career publishing over 250 papers documenting what she called the psychosomatic network. So she started to map out where these receptors were and she found they weren't only in the brain, they were in the body as well. She also found that these molecules of emotion were not just secreted in the brain, they were secreted by cells of the body as well. And so what she found through her continued research over all of these years is that there is this orchestrated communication going on, a symphony of communication that's facilitated by these molecules of emotion between the brain and the body at all times that coordinate not only our emotional state, but also our physiology, the function of all the systems of the body. So what are these molecules of emotion? or what Dr. Pert later termed informational substances. She saw this psychosomatic network as a big informational network. These molecules of emotion had previously been classified as other things, hormones, steroids, neurotransmitters, 
growth hormones, interleukins, gut peptides, cytokines, chemokines, and growth-inhibiting factors. There are hundreds of these informational substances made by the body. And, as was just described with the opiate receptor, there are receptors on all of our cells and all of our nerves that allow for this communication, this ongoing two-way communication between the mind and the body. If you imagine the cell, an average cell, and remember that the cell is the workhorse of the body, right? It is the basic unit of function. Every organ, every tissue, every body part is just a specialized collection of cells. So if you take your garden variety cell, what Dr. Pert showed with her research is that these cell membranes are studded with receptors. Hundreds of thousands, millions of receptors. And there are at least 70 different receptor types on the average cell. And there can be 50 to 100,000 copies of a single type of receptor spread out all over the cell. The average nerve cell also has millions of receptors. I think you can see how the presence of certain molecules of emotion and the concentration, the relative concentrations of these different molecules of emotion are a determining factor in how the cells of the body function, right? Because as these molecules of emotion are docking on these various receptors on each cell, they're delivering information you know, below the cell surface, they are directing the function of the cell, how well or poorly it's able to function and sustain or maintain health. Dr. Pert described this in a metaphor. She said, imagine that the cell is like the engine right, of physiological function, it's that basic unit, and that the receptors on its cell surface are like the buttons on the control panel of that engine, then you could say that the molecules of emotion are like the fingers on the buttons that direct cellular function. And so this led to a new definition of mind as Dr. Pert hypothesized or theorized, she felt that mind was no longer relegated to the brain. Once she understood the scope of this two-way communication, this communication system of the body. So she described mind as the flow of information between brain and body. And so this suggests a new definition of health which is the maintenance of homeostasis, homeostasis being balance in all physiological functions, by the free flow of the molecules of emotion. 
Now I should mention that Dr. Pert's work resulted in the founding of a new field of science. You know, she's one of the founding scientists behind the field of psychoneuroimmunology, which is the study of how the psyche, our thoughts and emotions, affects the nervous system and also the immune system, immune function. But Dr. Pert preferred a different term because she felt that there are really four major systems, four major systems that should be included in this field of study. Her term for it was psychoneuroimmunoendocrinology. So the connection between the psyche, the nervous system, the immune system, and the endocrine system, which is the hormonal system. You know, if you understand this metaphor that we just described, every cell of the body is involved in this symphony, this careful coordination, right? And so we could keep adding ologies, right, to this science of psychoneuroimmunology or psychoneuroimmunoendocrinology, however, you know, whatever you prefer, we could add all the ologies because through our circulatory system, you know, through the blood and the fluids of the body, there is a constant flow of these chemicals, these neuropeptides, or what she called the molecules of emotion, that is coordinating the function of all of our systems. There is no end to it. There is no end to the definition. It simply encompasses all that we are, mind and body. Dr. Pert's research also found that this communication network, what she called the psychosomatic network, is something that could be found all the way back to the most primitive, uh, evolutionarily speaking, organisms, like primitive fish, and then all the way up the food chain, right? to the chimpanzees, the gorillas, and man. And this suggests that this communication network, this manner of coordinating biological function within an organism is a very primary and essential function because it has been conserved throughout all of these levels of evolution. In addition to, you know, the field of psychoneuroimmunology, I want to bring your attention to another scientific field that was founded around that time, which is the science of epigenetics. Epigenetics is the study of the factors that influence genetic expression. And so this psychosomatic network that Dr. Pert has described also describes the mechanism by which thoughts and emotions are epigenetic factors, right? Because our emotions create biochemistry, which is received by the cell through these receptors. These receptors are communicating information into the cell, and they are driving biological function, including gene expression, right? Because they direct which proteins are being made in that cell, how much, how often, and of course it is gene expression, the expression of the gene 
that encodes for protein synthesis. So what I'm describing to you is really a new paradigm, right? And it's not new because her work, as I said, began in the 1970s. It's just not very well known. And this new paradigm is that we can look at emotions as information or the physiological counterpart of the emotions, right? As a, as a driver of physiological function. Now, usually I like to describe this on a very basic level. At all times, your brain, especially that limbic part of the brain, the emotional center of the brain, is analyzing 40 million bits of information per second, both what's going on out externally outside of you, as well as what's going on internally within you. And this includes your thoughts and emotions to determine, are we safe or are we unsafe? Based on that determination at any moment in time, molecules of emotion are being created, right? The amygdala is sending out signals, anxiety or stress, and that causes us to go into the stress response. When those molecules of emotion aren't around, then we can be in the rest, digest, and or heal response. You may be familiar with these two modes of the autonomic nervous system, what we call the sympathetic response, the stress response, or the parasympathetic response, the relaxation response, in which all restorative functions of the body, including healing, right, everything that would support healing, are primary. Dr. Pert liked to say, your body is your subconscious mind. What did she mean by that? Your body is your subconscious mind. What she was referring to is that unprocessed emotions can be stored in the body. And why would we have unprocessed emotions? The answer for this is a natural trauma mechanism. When we are in a situation that is overwhelming, that we do not have the resources or the experience to cope with, there is a protective mechanism whereby the subconscious mind can kind of freeze and hold that memory and the emotions that are attached to it and store it somewhere in the body. It's meant to be an adaptive mechanism because at that moment, we may be too young, too inexperienced, too new to this situation to know what to do about it. But the reason it's stored is so that at another time when we are safe and we are ready to work with and release this trauma, the body can do so. Problem is when these traumas or these blocks or barriers, which is basically what they become in the body, start to build up. Then we start to see impacts to our physiological function. Now, let's talk about how this works in practice. How might you have experienced this for yourself? I think we're all familiar with how the emotions can influence how we feel. In fact, in the English language, we say, how do you feel? And we mean both emotionally and physically, right? And so there's a general recognition of this in our language, in our culture. I think most people with chronic illness 
would agree that when you are stressed, when they are in a stressful situation, their symptoms get worse. So there's clearly an impact to how we are feeling on how, how we are feeling emotionally on how we are feeling physically. Examples that you may be familiar with, we know that emotions affect the gut. You've undoubtedly had the experience of being nervous, maybe before a presentation, feeling what we call butterflies in the stomach. You may have been, have felt very stressed, maybe before, you know, taking finals or some important exams, right? And we feel what we describe as knots in our stomach. Um, we know that how we are feeling emotionally can also affect motility or lack of motility. The effect of emotions on the skin is also obvious. When you feel embarrassed, many of us feel a kind of flushing happening, maybe on your neck or your chest or your face. This flushing, again, it's evidence of the molecules of emotion on the vascular system, right? In the first case, we talked about the gut. Well, you know, there are molecules of emotions, gut peptides or other kinds of molecules that are acting on the function of the gut, changing the way it feels, changing the way it works. When we have certain emotions like stress, this has an effect on our breathing. Asthmatics will tell you that Stress can bring on asthma attacks. Stress can change our pattern of breathing to be more shallow or more labored. We also know that certain emotional patterns, we call them personality traits, influence the kind of diseases that we are susceptible to. And so if you think about, you know, personality traits being a kind of um, code for the habitual ways that we emotionally respond to circumstances in our lives, that would be the underlying factor behind, you know, which molecules of emotion are being created and secreted in response to those stressful situations. We know that the type A personality, who is more intense, more competitive, more impatient, more aggressive, you know, they're prone to certain types of diseases, heart disease, vascular disease, heart attacks. You know, the type C personality tends to be very self-sacrificing, unassertive, not given to anger, people-pleasing. You know, this is the type of personality that's correlated to other kinds of chronic health issues, among them cancer. Now, there's another dimension to this that I would like to mention. And this is specific to the instance of infections. I'm going to be talking about Candace Pert's work from the 1980s, but this has implications for right now with COVID-19. 
When we think about something like infection, viral infection, bacterial infection, or otherwise, why is it that when a group of people is exposed to a virus or to a bacteria, there can be some individuals that don't get sick and others that have a more severe or prolonged illness? I think it's important to understand that the simple introduction of an infectious agent into the body whether it's virus, bacteria, fungus, or whatever, is not enough alone to make you sick. It's more complicated than that. Again, your state of health affects how susceptible you are to getting sick, how severe the symptoms will be, and how long the duration will be. Will you recover in a week, two weeks, two months, or will you have chronic ongoing symptoms? Candace Pert explains it this way. Viruses use the same receptors as neuropeptides to enter a cell. And depending on how much of the natural peptide is round and available to bind, natural peptide here, she's talking about molecules of emotion, right? So depending on how much of the natural Molecule of emotion is around and available to bind to those receptors, right? The virus will have a harder or easier time getting into the cell and infecting it. So this is kind of profound, right? Because what it suggests is that our emotional state has something to do with how susceptible we are to infections and the promptness of our recovery. Now, as I said before, in the 1980s, when she was doing this work, we had a different epidemic going on. It was the AIDS epidemic. And at the beginning, we didn't really understand what was going on. And certainly there were no, no drugs, no therapies available for treatment. Eventually, the AIDS virus was identified, it was sequenced, and it was found that the AIDS virus infected lymphocytes, certain kinds of immune cells using a certain kind of receptor, the T4 receptor. And remember what Candace Pert said, viruses use the same receptors as neuropeptides. Viruses use the same receptors as molecules of emotion to enter a cell. So viruses don't just slash their way into a cell, right? That would defeat the purpose. Because what a virus wants to do is to inject its RNA or its DNA into the cell and co-opt that cell, right? Kind of take over its function, kind of hijack it to make copies of that RNA or DNA. And then when the cell dies of apoptosis, these fragments of RNA and DNA flood the body and infect other cells, right? So the virus wants to use the cell's ability to replicate in order to increase the infection load on its host, us. So slashing your way into the cell wouldn't be the way to do it. So viruses are much more sly than that. And this was not known until Candace Pert's work on this. Viruses use the same receptors as our own molecules of emotion. They dock in the same docking stations. 
Therefore, your emotional state and your health in the sense of how free-flowing are the molecules of emotion in your system, you know? Are you repressing or suppressing certain emotions so that they are not available? Those molecules of emotion aren't available to compete. This has a bearing on how likely you are to become sickened and how long or how severe your illness will be. So back to AIDS. You know, it was found at that time that severe depletion of lymphocytes was a sign of the presence of the AIDS virus. Why was that? Because the AIDS virus was infecting the lymphocytes using the T4 receptor. In doing so, it was undermining the immune response, right? It was knocking out these lymphocytes. And that is why the immune function of AIDS patients was becoming so dysregulated that they were dying of opportunistic infections that ordinarily wouldn't have been life-threatening. It was also noted that AIDS patients were experiencing neurological effects, what they called neuro-AIDS, dementia, memory loss, neuropathies, depression. Now think about this, right? There are parallels to what is going on today. The COVID virus also has both kinds of symptoms. You know, the physiological symptoms, the symptoms in the body, right? What we think of as viral illness, you know, the aches, the fever, the, the fatigue, all of that, as well as neurological effects. And some of these are the more devastating, uh, long COVID symptoms, brain fog, poor cognitive function, loss of taste and smell, or distortions in taste and smell. So it's interesting to note, you know, the importance of this work, not only for AIDS, but for understanding all kinds of viral illness. So Candace Pert did work on finding T4 receptors in the brain because she understood that if it was the T4 receptor that the AIDS virus was docking in order to enter the lymphocytes, our immune cells, that there must be T4 receptors in the brain and that this would explain the neurological effects of AIDS infection. And she found that the hippocampus and the cortex were both very densely populated with these kinds of receptors. And so that led her to start looking for the natural ligand, the molecule of emotion that we make naturally ourselves, that was what these T4 receptors were made for. And she found it in VIP, vasoactive intestinal peptide. We don't have these docking stations on our cells to allow viruses to infect us, right? We have them because there is some communication molecule, some endogenous, meaning made in the body, molecule of emotion that is meant to dock there. And when those receptors 
aren't already filled by these molecules of emotion, they are open and available for a virus to infect the cells. And so the natural molecule of emotion that uses the T4 receptors is this vasoactive intestinal peptide, which has all kinds of activity on the intestines. That's why it is named. That's why it has that name. But, you know, of course, it was named that at the time that it was found because of the activity that was, you know, uh, that it was responsible for in the intestines, but it obviously has effects throughout the body and in the brain. And Candace Pert speculated that it had the emotional tone of self-love. Very interesting, right? This ties to Louise Hay's work um, with AIDS patients around the same time. Before any therapies had been developed, she started working with groups of AIDS patients in New York City. And her belief was that they needed to learn how to love themselves. Remember what was going on at that time. AIDS was infecting homosexual men. Well, homosexual men were having a rough go in the 1980s. They faced a lot of societal and familial and, you know, social norms kind of pressures to be different, you know, than they were. Um, this was a group of people that were probably very low on self-love, self-worth, self-confidence. Is it any wonder that they were susceptible to this virus in the numbers and in the, in the degree to which they were at that time? So we don't know. We don't know what the COVID-19 virus receptor is. We don't know what the natural ligand is, what the molecule of emotion is, that would normally bind to that site. But I find it interesting that at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, a very perceptive friend of mine said to me, you know, it seems like the people who are most anxious or afraid are the ones that seem to be getting infected and that have the longer standing, most severe infections. I find that interesting as well. And maybe one day science will come to show that a lack of inner peace or security is the tone of the molecule of emotion that would ordinarily compete with COVID-19. Think about this. Think about the implications of this for other chronic infections, chronic EBV, chronic herpes viruses like CMV, varicella. I think this work is very suggestive for how working with the emotions, how working with the psyche, how working with the mind can be an effective way of creating the conditions in the body that can foster healing, recovery, and improvement in the 
function of the immune system. So as an, just a little side note, when I created my MAP for COVID long program, it was after reading how anti-anxiety drugs were being used to reduce the severity and the duration of COVID infections. And so the, the program is built on an understanding of emotions, reducing the negative emotions like anxiety, depression, fear, is an important way of promoting self-healing when it comes to a chronic long-term infection, whether it is COVID, Epstein-Barr virus, or anything else. So let's talk a little bit about how a modality like the MAP method can be helpful. As I just described, the MAP method is a very effective method for working with the emotions. With the MAP method, in each session, you know, we are looking for subconscious sources of stress, and this includes subconsciously held or repressed emotions. Many times during a session, people will tell me, you know, that they, f- they felt a huge release of some negative emotion, anger, guilt, shame, uh, sadness. And so one of the ways that the MAP method is helpful is simply by using the power of the subconscious mind to identify these trapped stores of emotion associated with traumatic events from the past. And as we use the MAP method to reduce the emotional intensity around that experience, it is also neutralizing associated events and experiences, along with their emotions as well. But the MAP method has even more utility than that because it is also a very good way of finding and changing the patterns that keep us stuck, right? So I have noticed among my clients Many of them, especially the ones who have had early life traumas, that they go from fight, flight, freeze. They go into the freeze state very readily when they are stressed. And this is just a behavior pattern that forms very young. I see it a lot. For children that are in stressful or traumatic situations, chaotic lifestyles, emotional or verbal abuse, physical abuse. When you cannot fight and you cannot flee, you go into the freeze response. And what happens is that becomes the habitual response to stress. What happens when we go into the freeze response? Well, it's a little like what I was describing before. The body stores the trauma and the emotions that are connected with it. It's like you create another block, another barrier to the free 
flow of molecules of emotion in the body. Now, if there's one thing I want you to take away from this podcast episode, it's that we need to have free-flowing molecules of emotion in order to maintain homeostasis. Homeostasis meaning balance between all the systems of the body. Because this is what fosters health. When we have, you know, habitual patterns of behavior or ways of dealing with stress, like repressing or suppressing our emotions, you know, maybe we were taught never to show sadness, sadness was not allowed, um, never to show anger, anger was not allowed, or when we had experiences that made us adopt that freeze state as the way that we deal with stresses in our lives, then you know, these, these patterns of behavior, of dealing with stress, are predisposing us to building up more blocks and barriers in our subconscious mind. And remember, Candace Pert said, your body is your subconscious mind. The blocks and barriers are being held somewhere in your body. Where? Well, it just depends on which, which systems of your body have weaknesses, but these are building up and blocking the free flow of the molecules of emotion that are critical, that are foundational to our health. So I hope that's really clear. So MAP is an energy-based modality, and one of its strengths is releasing stuck emotions. Remember, emotions themselves are energy in motion, each emotion can be likened to a frequency in the body, right? So energy modalities, like we've, you know, you've seen that EMDR, tapping, right? These are energy psychology modalities that have been used traditionally to free stuck or trapped emotions, to resolve the effects of trauma emotionally, mentally, and physically. Well, MAP is the next generation energy psychology method. And it is, I would say, a little gentler than EMDR and goes deeper than tapping to accomplish the same thing. So when we can uncover and release these repressed emotions, or when we can change the underlying patterns of behavior or habitual response that we have to stress, we can start to turn on the flow of peptides that enable the body, including the immune system, right, to do its job effectively. As Candace Pert said, sometimes the biggest impetus to healing can come from jumpstarting the immune system with a burst of long-suppressed anger. And it's not always about anger. It can be any suppressed or repressed emotion. Often there are, you know, familial, cultural, or even societal norms that require that we suppress certain emotions. So just recognizing that is the first step. And then, with that awareness, right, being able to identify the emotion, where it is stored in the body, and being able to release it without giving it power, 
That is something that the MAP method is very, very good at doing because it works directly with the subconscious mind. And remember, it is in the subconscious where these emotions are being stored or repressed. All right. Well, I hope that you have found this helpful in explaining how the emotions are physiological phenomena. They're not just this ephemeral thing like, I feel happy, I feel sad, and, you know, it's non-material, so therefore not important. No, it's very important. And thanks to Dr. Pert, we now understand how the emotions create biochemistry, how that biochemistry acts in communication between brain and body to direct how all the systems, every single cell functions in any moment and how these molecules of emotion even have particular relevance when it comes to infections I hope you found this discussion helpful and that you now have a greater appreciation for your emotions and why working with the emotions can be that final frontier, that last untapped resource that can make the difference in enabling your recovery, in enabling optimal health. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us for the Flourish with Neural Retraining podcast. Please listen again and remember to follow us and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Play, or Stitcher. Check out our free courses about the MAP method, how it works, and how we use it for mind-body healing at mapforhealth.us or schedule your introductory session at mindremapforhealth.com. Until the next time, be well and flourish. Content of this podcast, copyright 2022 by Twin Cities Neural Retraining. Music by Barbara Benn.